Section three of the Romance of Polar Exploration. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Lewin. The Romance of Polar Exploration by G. Firth Scott. Chapter three. The Search for Franklin. The enthusiasm which was aroused over the departure of Sir John Franklin's expedition gave place to a deep national anxiety as the years passed, without any word being received of his whereabouts. On October the 4th, 1849, the true love arrived at Hull from Davis Straits, and her commander, Captain Parker, reported that he had heard from some Eskimo that the Erebus and the Terror had been seen in the previous march fixed in the ice and apparently abandoned in prince regent's inlet no confirmation was ever obtained for this report but it served to excite public anxiety still more and expeditions began to be organized for the relief of the missing explorers in all twenty-one expeditions were sent of which eighteen were british and three american to search the neighbourhood where it was anticipated Sir John and his gallant band would be. Coals, provisions, clothing, and other necessities were deposited at different spots, in the hopes that they would be found by, and be of use to the castaways. But, as has already been stated, none were able to give succour to the men for whose use they were intended. A great deal of valuable and highly interesting work, however, was done, and in addition to at length discovering enough relics of the party to show that all the members had perished while carrying out their duty, an amount of knowledge was acquired which made the Northwest Passage familiar, located the magnetic pole, and opened the way for more recent and equally brilliant journeys towards the pole itself. The general public, as well as the government, were responsible for search expeditions, but to stimulate the enterprise, the British government offered a sum of £20,000 to any party of any country that should render efficient service to the crews of the missing Erebus and Terror. Half that reward was paid to Dr. Ray, who discovered the relics of the party now at the Greenwich Museum, consisting of Sir John Franklin's star, some spoons and forks, the remains of a watch, and some other metallic odds and ends. The story of this discovery was briefly told by Dr. Ray in a letter to the Admiralty. He was in 1854 surveying the coast of the mainland immediately south of King William's Land, when he encountered a small party of Eskimo hunters. He asked them whether they had ever met other white men, and they told him that four summers before, 1850, a number of white men had been encountered by some Eskimo who were catching seals off the south coast of King William's Land. The white men came from over the ice, and were dragging a boat behind them. By signs they made, the hunters understood that they were hungry, and a seal was exchanged for the articles Dr. Ray was shown. Then the white men went on walking over the ice, dragging the boat behind them, one walking in front alone, and all the rest pulling the ropes attached to the boat. A few weeks later they were seen again, this time on the mainland, but all were dead. The place where they were found was about one day's journey from the Great Fish River, and all had evidently died of cold and starvation. They had erected tents, and had turned the boat over for a shelter, and some of the men lay under the boat, while others were in and around the tents. 
one man was some distance away with a telescope slung over his shoulders and underneath his body was a double-barrelled gun this man they said was the chief of the party about the encampment there were plenty of guns and ammunition but no food more than likely the unfortunate castaways were too weak from want to be able to hunt for dr ray in his reports stated i may add that with our guns and nets we obtained an ample supply of provisions last autumn and my small party passed the winter in snow-houses in comparative comfort the skins of the deer shot affording abundant warm clothing and bedding next to the story of dr ray's discovery comes the account of the finding by lieutenant hobson on may the sixth eighteen fifty nine of the record left on point victory and after that again the recovery in eighteen seventy nine by lieutenant schwatka of the united states navy of the bodies of several of the erebus and terror crews but meanwhile a glance may be taken at some of the thrilling adventures which befell the different relief expeditions the account of captain mcclure's voyage in the investigator graphically told by himself in his reports to the admiralty is full of typical arctic adventure the investigator was one of several ships forming one of the expeditions after sailing in company for some time they separated to work over set areas the investigator entered the polar sea and sailed along the northeast passage she was soon amongst the ice and sailed on in a depth of a hundred and fifty feet of water until the pack showed a solid unbroken line in front from east to west then she sailed along it in the hopes of finding an opening but all that could be seen beyond the ice was a vast number of walrus lying upon it huddled together like sheep between the ice and the land however there was open water and here the investigator shaped her course keeping well in towards the shore on the lookout for natives there was an interpreter on board mirching by name so that whenever any natives were encountered inquiries could be made for tidings of the missing explorers at cape bathurst near the mackenzie river a part franklin had explored many years before a large tribe was observed and at once a boat party put off from the ship as they approached the shore thirty tents and nine winter houses were seen immediately the boats were run ashore a tremendous stir was caused in the village the men running to and fro and then charging down a steep slope to where the boats were aground on the beach as they drew near it was seen that each man carried a drawn knife in his hand as well as bows and arrows and their warlike intentions were still more clearly shown when they fitted arrows to the bows and began to aim at the white men the interpreter mirching clad in native costume advanced from the explorers towards the angry eskimo holding his hands above his head in the position which expresses peace among these primitive people they paused as they saw him and waited until he came up but although they put back their bows and arrows when he told them no one wished to harm them they would not relinquish their knives as they crowded down to the boats the captain told him to explain to them that they must put their knives away but the chief of the tribe immediately retorted so we will when you put down your rifles to prove their peaceful intentions one of the rifles was given to the chief to carry while the explorers remained with them and this action so effectually satisfied them that no harm would be done to them that they offered to let their visitors take charge of their knives the village contained over three hundred men women and children and was formed for hunting purposes the mass of ice showing across the open passage they said was the land of the white bear 
an animal which they explained was very plentiful and of which they were greatly in fear several tales were told of the savagery of these creatures a woman pitifully bewailing the loss of her little child who was carried off by one of them when playing at the water's edge within her sight a less mournful story was that of a seal hunter who having speared one seal was sitting by the side of his victim waiting for the mate to appear above the water when he felt a tap on the back suspecting a trick by a fellow huntsman he did not turn round whereupon he received a heavy blow on the side of the head which sent him sprawling as he scrambled to his feet angry at his comrade's roughness he saw a big bear walking off with his seal upon the interpreter explaining how the white men's rifles could kill the bears the chief at once invited him to come and live with them offering as inducements his own daughter a pleasant-looking girl of about fifteen a fully furnished tent and all the other necessary possessions of a well-to-do eskimo failing in that they invited the explorers to a feast of roast whale and venison salmon blubber and other delicacies but instead of taking from them the explorers presented them with a number of gifts and left them on the best of terms a few days later and farther along the coast another small band was encountered one of whom was wearing a brass button in his ear the button was off a sailor's jacket and upon being asked how he obtained it the man replied it had been taken from a white man who had been killed by the tribe he was asked for further particulars in case the unfortunate might turn out to be one of franklin's men the eskimo replied that it might have been done a year ago or when he was a child but the huts the white men had built were still standing the explorers at once persuaded him to take them to the spot but on arrival they found the hut so weather-worn and overgrown with moss that more than a generation must have passed since they were built this was not the only occasion when hopes were raised that some of the missing expedition were about to be discovered as the investigator continued her voyage along the coast heavy volumes of smoke were seen rising from a bluff and the man on the lookout in the crow's nest at the top of the foremast cried out that he could see white tents and men with white shirts on near them at once everybody was on the alert boats were lowered and rowed quickly to the shore but on close inspection the white tents were found to be conical mounds of volcanic formation and the smoke which was also volcanic was arising from fissures in the ground winter was now setting in and as there was no suitable harbour at hand captain mcclure determined to pass the season among the ice floes his decision was largely due to the fact that as the ice was forming around them a great mass of old ice over six miles in length and drifting at the rate of two miles an hour came upon them its enormous weight crushed everything out of its way and the ship could only manoeuvre sufficiently to graze it with her starboard bow fortunately on the other side of her there was only freshly formed and comparatively thin ice otherwise she would have been hopelessly crushed at once as it was the gradual drifting pass of the mass was disconcerting and it was decided to make fast to it a great mass which they ascertained extended downwards for forty-eight feet below the surface of the sea was selected and with heavy cables the investigator was made secure to it throughout the winter she remained moored to it though not without more than one experience of danger soon after making fast to the ice the first bear of the season was shot he was a magnificent specimen measuring over seven feet but upon being cut up considerable speculation was aroused as to the contents of his stomach 
In it was found raisins, tobacco, pork, and some adhesive plasters. For some time the combined intellect of the ship's company was exercised to explain where the bear could have obtained such a varied diet, and many suggestions were advanced in explanation. Franklin's ships might be near, some said, or the crews might be encamped on the neighbouring land, and Bruin might have looted their stores. No one struck the correct solution of the mystery, until some days later a hunting party came upon a preserved meat tin, partly filled with the same sort of articles as were found in the bear's stomach. He had evidently found the tin, and sampled its contents, not entirely to his enjoyment, as he had left the larger portion behind. But whence the tin had come, they never learned. The winter having passed without mishap, they began to watch for the breaking of the ice. When it began, they had a very narrow escape from destruction. A light breeze springing up the day after open water appeared among the floes, the pack to which the investigator was attached began to drift. It was carried towards a shoal upon which a huge mass of ice was stranded. A corner of the pack came in contact with the great stationary mass with a grinding shock that sent pieces of twelve and fourteen feet square flying completely out of the water, and, as the immense weight of the moving pack pressed forward, there was a sound as of distant thunder as it crashed onwards. The weight at the back caused an enormous mass to upheave in the middle of the pack, as though under the influence of a volcanic eruption. The great field was rent asunder, the block to which the investigator was attached taking the ground and remaining fixed, while the lighter portion swung round and with accelerated speed came directly towards the vessel's stern. To let go every cable and hawser which held her to the block was the work of a moment, for every one was on deck, keenly on the lookout. The moving mass caught her stem, and forced her ahead, and from between the moving flow and the stationary mass. The two came into grinding collision, and the men on the deck of the vessel saw the great bulk to which the ship had been attached slowly rise. It went up and up until it had risen thirty feet above the surface, and hung perpendicularly above the ship. It towered higher than the foreyard, presenting a spectacle that was at once grandly impressive, but terribly dangerous, for if it fell over upon the investigator she would be crushed to atoms. For a few moments the suspense was awful, till the weight of the flow broke away a mass from the great bulk, which rolled back with a tremendous roar and rending, and with some fearful heaves resumed its former position. But no longer could it withstand the pressure, and it was hurried forward with the rest of the flow, grinding along the surface of the shoal. The pack having set in towards the shore, the only hopes of safety lay in keeping with the ice, for if the investigator were pushed ashore by it, there would be little chance of her ever floating again. She was consequently made fast again, and carried along, though with a tremendous strain on her stern and rudder. It was discovered that the latter was damaged, but there was no possibility of unshipping it for repairs while the ice was moving. Towards the afternoon the wind dropped, the drift became less, and for five hours the rudder received attention. Scarcely had it been replaced, when once more the ice began to move, and the crew saw that they were being forced directly upon a large piece of the broken floe, which had grounded. Feeling certain that if the ship were caught between the grounded mass and the moving floe, nothing could save her from being crushed to pieces, a desperate effort was made to remove the great mass. The chief gunner, provided with a big canister of powder, went on to the ice and struggled over the rugged surface until he reached the stationary mass. 
he intended to lower the canister under the mass before exploding it but the ice was too closely packed around it to permit of this being done there was no time to consider any other plan so he fixed the blast in a cavity and firing the fuse scrambled back to the ship the charge exploded just as the pressure of the flow was beginning to tell but the result was apparently valueless the investigator by this time was within a few yards of the great mass and there seemed to be no hope of escaping from the crush every one on deck was in a state of anxious suspense waiting for what was evidently the crisis of their fate most fortunately the ship went stem on a sailor's term it and the pressure was directed along her whole length instead of along her sides every plank seemed to feel the shock and the beams groaned as the pressure increased the masts trembled and crackling sounds came from the bulwarks as she strained under the tension momentarily the men expected that she would collapse under them when the result of the gunner's blast was made manifest it had cracked the mass in three places and the pressure of the ship's stern forced the cracks open the liberation from the obstacles was at once evident as the mass slowly divided and falling over floated off the shoal the cable holding the vessel to the floe parted as she surged forward and the ice anchors drew out while the blocks of ice as they turned over lifted her bows out of the water and heeled her over but the cheer which broke out from the assembled crew drowned all other noise for it was as though they had been snatched from the very jaws of death subsequent examination of the vessel showed that she had escaped practically without serious injury several sheets of her copper were stripped off and rolled up like scraps of paper but as no leaks were discovered the loss of the copper was not greatly deplored after escaping from these dangers it was hoped that open water would be found so that the voyage might be continued to other areas which had to be searched and as the investigator drifted along amongst the partly broken up floes she encountered some rolling swells which increased the hopes that open water was not far ahead but in this the crew were disappointed for although the water near the land was sufficiently free from ice to enable sail to be made out towards the polar sea the pack was heavily enclosed they rounded cape lambton on banks's land a promontory which they found rose a thousand feet precipitously the land beyond gradually lost the bold character of the rugged cape the island presenting a view of hills in the interior which gradually sloped to the shore having fine valleys and extensive plains over and through which several small and one considerable sized stream flowed a great deal of driftwood lay on the beach and the land was covered with verdure upon which large flocks of geese were feeding while ducks were flying in great numbers two small islands were passed off the coast one of which afforded an example of the force exerted by a drifting polar sea ice flow the island rose about forty feet above the surface of the sea and broken masses of ice which had formed a flow had been driven entirely over it the pack still presented an impassable barrier to their course away from the land and as the season was getting late they decided that they would make winter quarters a suitable bay was found on the north of the island and there they spent not one but two winters for the ice remained so thick during the ensuing short summer that it was impossible to move in the summer however if they could not get to sea they could travel on to the land and as game was plentiful they were able to keep themselves well supplied with fresh meat 
but when winter again came upon them with its cold darkness the game was scarcer and what was worse the ship's stores were decreasing as perhaps another twelve months would have to be faced everyone went on reduced rations so that the stores should be made to last as long as possible the approach of the milder weather captain mcclure determined should be made the occasion of a daring expedition a few of the men were beginning to show signs of sickness and the captain decided that they should set out in april for the mainland with enough provisions to carry them through the ship was so slightly affected by the buffeting she had received that the leader could not bring himself to think of abandoning her while he had any stores left and men who were ready to remain with him only the least robust of the crew were to go as the overlanding party and they were to travel to the nearest station of the hudson bay company and from thence press on to england with dispatches for the admiralty requesting help and provisions for those who remained by the ship everything was arranged even to the date of departure which was settled as april the fifteenth but before that day arrived another incident was to transpire on april the tenth captain mcclure and his first lieutenant were walking over the ice near the ship discussing the serious turn events had taken for one of the men had just died from scurvy and some of the others were in a bad state of health this was the first death which had occurred and it naturally cast a gloom over every one as the two walked they espied a man coming rapidly towards them from over the ice he was hastening so much that they thought he must be flying from a bear and they went forward to meet him but as they approached him they saw that he was not one of their own ship's company for he was of a different build to any of their men in addition to which his face showed black from between his furs and he was waving his arms wildly they stopped doubtful what to make of him and he rushed up still gesticulating and articulating wildly who are you and where do you come from mcclure exclaimed sternly lieutenant pym of the herald captain kellett the strange figure managed to reply as he seized mcclure's hands and shook them frantically rapidly he told the astounded couple his story for captain kellett of the herald had bid mcclure godspeed as he was entering the polar sea three years before and the commander of the investigator could not understand how he could have reached Banks's land the herald was one ship of another expedition which had come in search of the gallant franklin she had wintered at melville's island and lieutenant pym had set out across the straits with the sledge party on march the tenth for a month they had been wandering and he had happened to be on ahead of his men when he caught sight of the investigator in the distance he had pushed on to ascertain who she was when he saw and recognized captain mcclure his astonishment and excitement overmastered him and he could only halloo and shout and jump about in his glee the noise of his shouts reached the vessel where the crew hearing a strange voice came tumbling up from below to see who it was that had arrived the sight of the herald sledge party soon afterwards completed their surprise and gratification for it meant that close at hand was all the help they needed to successfully ensure their liberation the whole ship's company journeyed across to where the herald lay and in the interchange of yarns and the assurance of abundance of food and rest till the ice broke up they found just the requisite stimulus to overcome all the evil effects of their past trials and privations with a few men from the herald to relieve the members of his crew who were on the sick list captain mcclure returned to the investigator after a few days and when the summer arrived he worked his vessel out into open water then he joined company with the herald and sailed for england 
whither his dispatches and reports had already preceded him and earned him fame. The return of Captain McClure and the result of his discoveries, together with those of other expeditions, and Dr. Ray's find of Franklin's relics, satisfied the British government that further search was unavailing. As the account of Sir John Franklin's voyage had not yet been found, the honour of proving the existence of the Northwest Passage was, for the time being, accorded to McClure, and the Admiralty, satisfied that all the members of the Franklin expedition had perished, and the ships either been abandoned or destroyed, ceased dispatching further search parties. There were, however, a large number of people who were by no means satisfied that everything possible had been learned as to the fate of the Erebus and Terror. Lady Franklin, Sir John's second wife, was one who refused to give up hopes, and largely through her efforts yet another vessel was sent out. This was the Fox, under the command of Sir L. F. McClintock, and the voyage was more profuse in the obtaining of evidence as to the fate of the Franklin party than all the rest put together. McClintock made his way directly to King William's land, with a definite programme in view. He and his first lieutenant, Hobson, were each to journey with sledge-parties along the coast of that island, and examine everything which suggested a chance of learning the fate of the vanished explorers. Especially were they to seek for any natives, and glean from them, by means of presents and barter, any knowledge they might have, or any relics which might remain among them, of the two ill-fated ships. The Fox was a screw-steamer, a fact which very largely contributed to the success of the expedition, as she was able to make steady progress, whereas a sailing-vessel would have had to wait for favourable winds, and so probably lose a great deal of very valuable time. She sailed from Aberdeen on July the 1st, 1857, and returned on September the 22nd, 1859, accomplishing, in her two years' absence, an amount of discovery which placed all question of the fate of the Erebus and Terror, and their crews, beyond a doubt. As soon as the fox was made snug in winter quarters, McClintock and Hobson set out over the ice in search of some Eskimo. They were fortunate in discovering a couple of seal-hunters, who told them that some distance away there was a larger party, amongst whom was a man with knowledge of the missing explorers. They set out with their two friends, but as night was coming on, while yet they had not reached the camp, they decided to stay where they were till the morning. The two Eskimo, for one needle apiece, built a snow-hut for them in an hour. All of them went inside the shelter, which they found very acceptable, and prepared their supper. The food they carried consisted of salt pork and biscuits, but the two Eskimo would not look at it. Their supper consisted of a piece of bear's blubber, when they had consumed it, they squatted on their haunches, and, with their heads drooped forward on their knees, went off to sleep for the night. The following day the main camp was reached, and the white men at once realised, by the number of articles of European manufacture in the possession of the Eskimo, that they must have found and looted the abandoned ships. One of the men told them, through the interpreter, that several years before there was a ship in the ice off the coast but that when the ice melted it had sunk in deep water. He pointed out the direction where the ship had been, and where there had been a lot of driftwood thrown up on the beach, wood out of which, he explained, they had made their spear-handles and tent-poles. Other relics were gradually forthcoming, 
upon the production by the white men of the barter they had with them, and a brisk trade was carried on, knives and needles being exchanged for spoons, forks, and other objects unmistakably from the wrecked ships. In addition to the relics, some dogs were also secured. The latter purchase afforded them considerable amusement, and often excitement, before they were entirely masters in the art of dog-team driving. Like everything else worth doing, it has to be learned, and in his account of his journeyings, McClintock quotes one or two instances where experience was his only teacher. He found, for instance, that when a dog-team is harnessed up to a sledge, every dog does not pull his hardest, and a suggestion from the whip is advisable. The dog, however, is inclined to resent it, and at once bites his neighbour by way of protest. The neighbour, in turn, bites his neighbour, who does the same, until the whole team has received the sting arising from the first lash, and every dog is howling and snapping and jumping over each other. The application of the whip handle instead of the whip lash is then necessary, and when at length quiet is restored, the driver has to set to work to unplat the harness, which has been twisted and tied into a terrible tangle by the antics of the team. When, at the expense of a great deal of patience and time, everything is ready for a fresh start, the inexperienced driver is able to estimate the value of cracking the whip over, instead of on, the back of a lazy dog. Even then, however, it is not all plain sailing. The dogs possess a wisdom of their own, and they never act so well together as when they reach a piece of particularly rough ice over which the sledge does not move easily. Directly they find that they have to lean heavily against the collar to pull the load forward, they, with one accord, turn round, sit down, and look at the driver. If he is inexperienced, he lays about him with his whip, and the dogs fight and tangle the harness. If he knows his animals, he puts his shoulder to the sledge, pushes it forward on to the toes of the team, whereupon each one gets up, hurries out of the way of the threatening sledge-runners, and together pull it easily over the rough place. Another peculiarity of the dogs is their extraordinary appetite for leather. Shark-skin the Eskimo consider to be bad for them, because of its excessive roughness, but bird-skins with the feathers on are greatly relished by the insatiable feeders, and, as has been said, leather is an especial luxury. The dogs are incorrigible thieves, and frequently sneak into the tents, or, if on board ship, into the cabins in search of plunder. They are generally greeted with a kick, but should it be sufficiently energetic to dislodge the kicker's shoe, the dog at once seizes the delicacy, and makes for a quiet spot on the ice where he can devour it at his leisure. The dogs, however, which McClintock was able to obtain from the Eskimo, were genuinely useful to him when he and Lieutenant Hobson began their prolonged search, and his only regret was that he could not get more. Later explorers have profited by his experience, for now an expedition is never considered complete that does not carry at least one team. After leaving the Eskimo encampment, search was continued along the southern coast of King William's Land, but without very much success. Returning, they again met the same tribe of Eskimo, and discovered that when one of the race speaks, he does not necessarily tell all that he knows. During a conversation between the interpreter and one of the young men, the latter made a reference to the ship that came ashore. As the man who had previously mentioned the ship said that it sank in deep water, the young man was asked how it could have come ashore under those circumstances. 
The other one sank, he said. The one he meant came ashore, where he had seen it. Further inquiries showed that both the ships had been seen and visited by the Eskimo while they were yet in the ice. One of them they could not find how to enter, so they made a hole in her side, with the result that when the ice melted she filled and sank. In one of the bunks they found a man lying dead, but no other bodies were right near the ship. Now that they had been discovered in their attempt to evade the truth, the Eskimo spoke readily enough, giving the exact locality where the ship had come ashore. Thither McClintock and his companions at once proceeded. They found enough evidence in the driftwood on the beach to show them where the vessel had gone to pieces, but whether it was the Erebus or the Terror there was nothing to show. They had now, however, a definite point from whence to commence their search, and they laid out the probable routes by which the escaping crews would have travelled. Separating into two parties, so as to cover as much ground as possible, they started, Lieutenant Hobson leading. On May the 25th, 1859, McClintock, while walking along a sandy ridge from whence the snow had disappeared, noticed something white shining through the sand. He stooped to examine it, thinking it to be a round white stone, but closer inspection showed it to be the back of a skull. Upon the sand being removed, the entire skeleton was found, lying face downwards, with fragments of blue cloth still adhering to its bleached bones. The man had evidently been young, lightly built, and of the average height. Nearby were found a small pocket-brush and comb, and a pocket-book containing two coins and some scraps of writing. He had evidently fallen forward as he was walking, and never risen. As an old Eskimo woman told Dr. Ray, they fell down and died as they walked along, overcome with cold, hunger, and sickness. The explorers were now in the region where all their finds were to be made. Five days later McClintock came upon a boat which he found from a note attached to it that Hobson had already examined. It had evidently escaped the notice of the Eskimo, and until the white men found it, had probably not been touched by human hands from the moment its occupants had died. It was mounted on a sledge, as though it had been hauled over the ice, but from the fact that its bows pointed towards the spot where the ships had been, it was surmised that the men were dragging it back to the vessels when they were overcome. Inside were two bodies, one lying on its side under a pile of clothing towards the stern, and the other in the bows, in such a position as to suggest that the man had crawled forward, had laboriously pulled himself up to look over the gunwale, and had then slipped down and died where he fell. Beside him were two guns, loaded and ready cocked, as though the man had been apprehensive of attack. There were also as many as five watches, several books, mostly with the name of Graham Gore, or initials G. G. in them, abundance of clothes, and other articles, such as knives, pieces of sheet lead, files, sounding leads and lines, spoons and forks, oars, a sail, and two chronometers, but of food only some tea and chocolate. The story mutely told by these relics was only too plain. Weary with hauling it, the majority of the men had left the boat in order to get back to the ships and obtain a fresh supply of provisions, leaving two, who were too weak to struggle on, in the boat as comfortable as they could be made until some of the others could get back to help them. Then the days had passed, until the store of provisions had been consumed, 
and the two sufferers had grown weary with waiting, so weary that one had slept and died under his wraps, and the other, with his remaining vestige of strength, had crawled forward to peep out once more for the help that was so long in coming. But only ice had met his gaze, and sinking down he had also passed into that overwhelming sleep, and had lain undisturbed for twelve years under the covering of the arctic snows. Close search was made in the vicinity of the boat for the remains of any other of the lost explorers, but nothing was discovered except driftwood. The spot where the boat was found was about fifty miles from Point Victory, sixty-five from the place where the ship had gone ashore, and seventy from the skeleton that McClintock had discovered on the ridge. A few days' march further on, a cairn was noticed upon the brow of a point near Cape Victoria. On ascending to it, McClintock found another note from Hobson, stating that he had already examined it and recovered from it the record which the crews had deposited there upon the desertion of the ships, and which is given in the account of the Franklin voyages. This was the final triumph of the search, for it conclusively proved that Sir John had been dead before the ships were abandoned, that he, and not McClure, was the real discoverer of the Northwest Passage, and that the expedition had ended in a disaster as pitiful as the commencement had been brilliant. Round the cairn were strewn innumerable relics, showing that the three days which had elapsed from the time of their leaving the ships had been sufficient to further decrease the strength and vitality of the scurvy-stricken unfortunates. No other discovery of moment was made after the unearthing of the Vitam record, but Lieutenant Hobson had some experience of what the Franklin explorers must have suffered. He had abundance of food with him, and that the best and most nutritious, but he developed scurvy on his journey, and when he reached the Fox he could not walk without assistance. No wonder, then, that Franklin's men, starving as well as sick, should have died by the way. The return of the Fox in September 1859 effectually set at rest all doubts as to the fate of the Erebus and Terror, and no more search expeditions were sent out. But in 1879, Lieutenant Schwatka of the United States Navy made an overland journey to that part of King William's land where the crews had perished. He found many more skeletons, doubtless of members of the ill-fated expedition, and wherever he found one lying above ground, he buried it with proper ceremony, except in a single instance. This was in the case of an open grave of stones, in which the remains of a skeleton, with some blue clothing adhering to it, and some coarse canvas around it, was lying. Near the remains he found a silver medal bearing the words, Awarded to John Irving, Midsummer, 1830, Second Mathematical Prize. The presence of the medal identified the remains as being those of Lieutenant Irving of the Terror. As this was the only instance where identification was possible, Lieutenant Schwatka carefully and reverently gathered them together and carried them to New York, from whence they were forwarded to Edinburgh, Irving's native town. There they were accorded a public funeral on January the 7th, 1881. End of chapter 3